last few weeks, in fact, we are in the middle of, this is week number six of a series of messages that I've been speaking on called Benchmarks of Faith. And for those of you that may be guests today, my name is Doug DeMent, and, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace, and I'm so honored that out of everything that you've chosen that you could do today, that you chose to be in the house of the Lord with us today. And I pray that through the, not only the worship and the greeting time, we, we love the connections here. We want to make sure that uh, as we're doing life together in Christ, that we, we have a family atmosphere for that. And so that's why we spend time just getting to know you. You're valuable to us, and we look forward to getting to know you in a better way. But this series has been about the aspect primarily for the believer of, of what does it look like for the believer when we are growing in the Lord? What are the benchmarks of our faith, things that we should be aiming at that, that brings to us a place where as people observe our life and those that are closest to us recognize that the work of the Lord is ongoing in our hearts and lives and it changes the way that we think and it changes the way that we speak. It changes the way that we live and worship and, and live for God. And today I want to approach this topic with... Uh, talking about marriages that please God. And I recognized as I was preparing this that not everybody in our church is married. And, and some of you are single, some of you are single by choice, some of you are single because of circumstances. But as we're talking about benchmarks of faith, there is, I believe, much that the Spirit of the Lord has to tell us as to what marriages should look like as we are pursuing God. So, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, I ask that you, through the Holy Spirit, would bring something to each of us. Regardless of the circumstances of our relational life, we recognize that as we dive into the word, there's always something that can feed us. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to each of us at just the areas that we need and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I did not want to move to New York. When I was 12 years old, my family and I visited on a vacation to New York City. And being from the Midwest, I grew up primarily in a town of about 5,000 people in central Nebraska, and then moved from there when I was in junior high to southern Missouri. So I have a very Midwest mindset growing up. And so being in a place that had buildings that had more people than lived in my whole town was a little startling for me. And I, I made this decision about want, not wanting to live in New York because as a 12-year-old when we were vacationing there, I remember coming out of the hotel for the first morning and in Nebraska, we wave at everybody. We smile, we stare them in the eyes. I discovered right away in New York City that that's not the way you do things. I, came out and I'm, there's a man the walking, I'm smiling at him, waving at him, and he goes, what are you looking at, kid? And uh, I remember thinking, oh my, this is a different world. Later that day, our family took the circle line. I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but it's a boat that kind of goes around New York City so that you can kind of get a view of all of the boroughs. And, and while we were on this, there were some parts as we were going, I guess, around the Bronx that there were teenagers that were in their underwear and they were jumping off the cliffs near our boat and on their way down they would moon us and and they would begin to scream curse words at us that would make sailors blush and and I remember thinking to myself what is wrong with people why would you do something like that and then later that day I was on a subway for the very first time and I was sitting down, and, and our car was packed, and there was an elderly lady that was there hanging on to one of the wrist straps, and 
Uh, I was raised in such a way that if there was somebody that was older than you that needed a seat, you asked them. And so I, I looked at her and said, would you like to sit down? And I got up, and before she could unleash her hand from the strap, another teenage boy dove into the seat where I was, and he looked at that woman, and he goes, you snooze, you lose. And then he looked at me, and he goes, what are you looking at? And I remember thinking about that time I told God as a 12-year-old that I would never live in New York and there was nothing he could ever do to change my mind. Jump forward with me in my life now about seven years. I'm now a freshman at Evangel University and I was in the dining hall and we were in line waiting to get our food and as I'm looking out comes this lady holding a tray. She was wearing a beautiful sweater with green pants and I remember watching her she came out and, and as I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, my goodness, that's a pretty girl. And I remember thinking to myself, I am going to find out who this lady is. Now, it, it took me till the next year in order to maneuver myself to be in a position where somehow this young lady was in a group of people that were about ready to jump in cars, and, and I maneuvered it in such a way that she had to be in the car that I was driving. And as we're driving along, we came to a place where there was a restaurant, and, and I remember her saying, oh, I've, I've always wanted to eat at that restaurant, and I, I am a man that takes advantage of opportunities. <laughs> and I said, hey, how about I pick you up for church Sunday night, and then after that, we'll go together to that restaurant. And in front of the peer pressure of a carload of our friends, she felt she had to say yes. And I remember our first date together as we we're getting acquainted and, and I just began to ask her some questions and I said, you know, where are you from? And she said, New York. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? <laughs> well, I will never live there. That didn't seem to be a deal killer for us, so we were able to continue on. But here's what I learned about this New York girl that first night. There's an attitude. New Yorkers have an attitude. And so... I told her as we were sitting there in the restaurant that first night, I'm looking at her knowing, I didn't know at the time that her dad was like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed German, and her mother was Japanese, but I looked at her and I said, you have the most beautiful eyes that I have ever seen. To which she responded with heartfelt, looked at me and she goes, that is the worst line <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. So as we were walking out of the restaurant, I kind of jumped ahead of her so that I could open the door for her, to which she responded, I am capable of opening my own door. And I said, what you are capable of doing and what I will do for you as a gentleman are two different things. And uh, throughout that school year, somehow that first date didn't destroy me, uh, that she allowed me to remain in her life, and so we continued to get to know one another better throughout that year. I remember as we were approaching kind of halfway through the spring semester that she had indicated to me that God had been speaking to her and that she needed to go on a missions trip that summer where she would spend several months away in Guam. And, and I remember hearing her heart and all of that and seeing what God was doing and it really just began to speak to me that I, there's a lot to be uh, admired about this young lady. And uh, as we got to the end of the school year, God had provided in some wonderful ways for her to be able to go on that trip. And her parents had driven out because they were going to be flying out of Springfield, Missouri. So I got to meet them at that time. But I remember as we were heading for the airport, as she was getting ready to fly away and be gone for four months, that I had already known in my heart God was doing something. So I brought flowers with me. Uh, 
And I presented her with roses. I told her before she got on that plane, I said, you have captured my heart, and I just want you to know before you leave that I am in love with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where God will lead us within this. And then I watched her fly off with a group of people going on a missions trip. And some of the guys that were on that trip were, were probably better looking than I were, certainly were taller. And I began to think to myself, none of, none of you have insecurities, I know. But I began to think to myself, what am I going to do to make sure that she does not forget this handsome five foot eight man that is waiting for her <laughs> back here? And uh, the risk of losing her was something that was really of, of, of tremendous value to me. And, and so I, I began to undertake a summer of doing something I had never done before, and that was write letters. I wrote a letter every day so that she would make sure that something from my heart was being deposited into her every day. And back in the 70s, some of you may remember, it was really, really expensive to make long-distance calls, and they weren't in a place where they could even be near a phone. So I was only able to call her on the phone like for 10 minutes once a month. So letters was the only way. Some of you young people have no idea what that's all about, but believe me. <laughs> and I remember... Later in the summer, knowing that she was getting ready to come home, that I sat down with my mom and dad and I had a conversation. And I began to tell them how I felt about Cindy. And uh, I said I had been praying about it, and I feel permitted of the Lord to pursue this relationship uh, and into a place that perhaps is more lasting. And I remember asking my mom and dad, you know, I came from a family where... Um, Anybody we dated, we always had opinions about. My, my two younger sisters suffered through that because I had great opinions about the people she dated. Uh, some of you may understand what that's like, but how my mom and dad felt was very important to me. And I remember sitting down with them and I said, listen, have you seen anything in me or have you seen anything in Cindy or in our relationship that would cause you a concern if I choose to pursue her? And my mom told me, she said, this is the first girl that you have ever dated that you would rather stay home and write letters to her than go out and do other things you love. And I said, so what does that mean to you? She said, well, here's what I see. She goes, if you're willing to make those small sacrifices now, if you're mature enough to do that, maybe you're mature enough to handle the much larger sacrifices that will come as God brings you to a place of being a godly man and a godly husband. And so... It was later in January when Cindy accepted my proposal, and we were sitting around the family table when uh, I announced that she has agreed to be my wife, and I remember my mom and dad getting up from the table. <laughs> She's still beautiful. And walked over to her, and they put their arms around her, and they said, so you were the girl that we have been praying for all Doug's life. And I recognize that for us today, learning to trust God and wait on the Lord is not easy. We come at things with our own plans and our own practicalities and our own timelines, but it is always in our best interest as children of God to let God lead and guide in all of the areas of our life. Now, I recognize some of you are single here today and you're going to go, what, what is this going to have to do with me? I pray, I pray that God will deposit some things in you today that will be helpful in your relationship. Some of you are called to singleness and some of you are in a stage of your life where you're single, but you believe that God is going to bring somebody into your life. And, and so this is a preparation time for you. But there's probably no more practical area of life that reveals the challenges of pleasing God more than being in relationships with people. 
It's the first place in our life where we learn to say no to pleasing ourselves and yes to pleasing others and yes to putting God first. And so I look at this and I recognize that marriage, the marriage relationship is profound and it is because the scripture tells us that it is a picture of Christ and the church and he desires to produce a bride that is without stain or without wrinkle or without blemish but is holy and blameless. And for Cindy and me, these lessons only began in our courtship but have continued daily through the process throughout our marriage. And now 38 years into marriage and two grown children and a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law and four grandchildren, here's what we have discovered, what many of you have discovered, that there's a joy to maturity. There's a blessing to having a relationship mature. We've discovered that a good marriage is not easy, but it's straightforward and it can be fun. And time flies when you're having fun. I also discovered that if you find the right person to do life with, it doesn't matter where you live. <laughs> and this New York girl introduced me to a whole new world. By the way, after we got married, we did spend the first two years in Nebraska. She learned to understand what it smells like when the wind is blowing from the cattle barns right through town. And it was after two years of that of being able to establish our life that we had an opportunity to come to New York. And 36 years later, I am a New Yorker. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, Cindy and I were flying back to Missouri because we needed to be with our parents. And uh, they happened to live across the street from each other in a retirement community, in, in which really makes it easy to run back and forth and kill lots of birds with one stone. And, uh, but while we were there, we were also meeting with my nephew and his fiancée who's preparing to get married in April and I'll have an opportunity to their, their marriage. But while we were flying, it began to dawn on me that flying provides a really useful metaphor when we're thinking about marriage. And if you have your bulletin, there's a few points there that I'm going to kind of quickly go through this morning that I believe can help us as we begin to understand what the benchmark of marriage can look like for the believer. First point is this, pushback and taxi. The importance of adequate preparation. As we were waiting to get on the plane, I'd seen the people depart the new, before the new ones got on. The pilot got out, and I watched through the window as he walked around with a flashlight, looks up into the, into the landing gear place where it was going to go, runs his hands across the wings, you know, and, and there's a comfort that came to me recognizing that whoever's about to launch this plane that I'm going to be sitting on has at least walked around and put his hands on it and recognized that at least it, from the appearance that he had, it was safe for us to go. Because I recognize that great care needs to be taken to ensure that when the moment of takeoff occurs, that the potential for any form of tragic failure has been minimized by preparation. And it's this reason that the pilot and the co-pilot work hard and that the, the crew gets together and they tell you, if you have any baggage, would you please make sure that it's locked in the overhead compartments or put in the seat, fart, seat, seat uh, in front of you underneath there? Because we recognize that each of us have baggage within our life. We all travel with baggage and in the preparation of our lives with other people we need to know what to do with that baggage to make sure that it doesn't become destructive to us on the journey that we have part of the responsibility that we have is also preparing our children for what their married life will be like because there's a day that they're going to take off from you it may be the day they get their driver's license and they drive off for the first time in the car and you can't stand it you're standing there by the window waiting for them to show up safe back at home it may be the time when they leave and they go off to college 
Or maybe it's a time when they go off to work in another city. But the ultimate takeoff, which the Bible speaks of, is weddings. In the phraseology of the King James Version, it says this. Those that are getting married need to leave their parents and cleave to their spouse. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the scripture says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and becomes attached to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, I had a friend of mine, Steve Malazzo, that had posted something about this verse online, and I liked it so much that I took the, the diagram that he had, and I'd like to show that to you this morning so that maybe you can look at this and, and follow along with me on this. This visual that helps us as we understand how do we teach our children to prepare scripturally for marriage. It starts off by circling, this is why a man... A man indicates to us that there is a maturity that is necessary for each individual before you enter into marriage. And I need you to understand that chronological age does not measure maturity. I have seen young 20-year-olds as they are preparing for marriage that astounded me with their maturity. And I've seen 40-year-olds that I looked like and they were still acting like kids. So chronological age does not mean maturity. But the scripture indicates that in order for you to be healthy in a marriage, you need to be mature. Because it was going to require that of you. Following that, it says that there's a transition that takes place in marriage. A man leaves his father and mother. When you marry, you don't just add a new ingredient into the things that you already love to do in your life. You change your life. You transition to a new life. You transition to a new way of living. You transition with a new person. And together you create a life. It says you leave your father and mother. Indicating to us that when marriage takes place, loyalties change. No longer is mom and dad the final authority on the way you live life. You are now joined together with a partner and your greatest loyalty is to your new husband or to your new wife. And this is the way that you build a new family. You become attached to each other. A new family is created. It says his wife. In other words, you complement one another. You're loyal to one another. This marriage relationship is the only thing that you will ever own in this world. Cindy is my wife. I am her husband. This is our marriage. We own it. And that is something that you build together. And it says then that they become... Your marriage is always becoming something. You're always working. A marriage is is a do-it-yourself project with four hands working together to create something that you both can enjoy and work together to build. It's also in that becoming that you learn the process of how to communicate with each other. You learn a friendship and you learn to trust. Men early in their marriage learn that women have two ways of communicating. One with words and one with looks. <laughs> and wise husbands would learn to evaluate both of those levels of communications. It's when they learn that men have a box that we can go to. And when the wife will say, what are you thinking about? And they say nothing. They really mean it. There is a box that men can go to where we think about nothing. Women are incapable of ever getting into that box. But men have it. And we learn to communicate through those things. That verse ends with saying they become one flesh. Regardless of what the world may tell you today, sexual intimacy in marriage is between one man and one woman committed for life to one another in the covenant 
of marriage. I remember the emotions that I felt when I walked my daughter Kara down the altar, down the aisle to get married, and, and I was reminded of something that Chuck Swindoll had written about when he had walked his daughter down the aisle, and he says, I felt like giving my daughter away was taking a prized Stradivarius, which is a very delicate and very expensive violin, and I was putting it into the hands of a gorilla. And, and I, I recall as I'm walking down the aisle seeing Philip standing up there and he has this grin on his face as he's looking at my daughter and I wanted to about halfway to say, nope, nope, no, nope, no, nope, nope. And then it dawned on me, that's the same face I had when Cindy and her dad are walking down the aisle and I'm going, come on, babe. It's impossible to overstate the importance of adequate preparation before the pushback and taxi. And so along with parents, the role of the local church is vital in respect to teaching our children and helping them prepare for what marriage will look like. And the most important lessons we can teach our children in preparation for marriage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not... Be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, the way I have seen this particular scripture twisted to justify is somebody say, but he or she is not a wicked person. They're a good person. Let me tell you something. The Lord will be the final judge on what is wicked and what is good. And if you are not in a relationship with him, regardless of the character that an individual may display, they are in darkness. And very clearly, we as parents and teachers and the church need to proclaim to our children as they are growing up that in order to reach for a benchmark of marriage that honors God, it must start with having people of similar faith in Jesus Christ. There can be no doubt the instruction is clearly relevant to the union of marriage. I remember when I was a senior in high school and, and I was getting ready to take a girl out from my high school and my father came to me and he asked me about her and I was describing her. He said, so tell me about her faith. And I said, to my knowledge, Dad, she and her family don't go to church at all. He said, so, so she's not a believer. And I said, no. And he goes, then we'll talk when you get home tonight. And when we got home that night, my dad was sitting with me and he said, here's what I want you to understand. He said, first of all, what qualities did this young lady have in her life that you will later look for in somebody who knows Christ as her Savior? And I began to outline some of those. And then he said, here's my concern. Son, you can fall in love with anybody if you put yourself in that position. And very clearly, he began to outline for me from that age as I began to understand what relationships are about, but that dating wasn't just being with a pretty person. It had a purpose to it. And you're looking for somebody that you can build a life with. And if it's not on the same foundation of Christ, then the hope of it surviving is little. And the joy of that relationship would be small. And he taught me that there are some things that cannot be compromised in life. One of them being the foundation because it's the preparation for what will come. Secondly, there's the takeoff or the beginning of married life. There is nothing quite like the experience of takeoff. I love it when the plane gets on the runway and you can see that long stretch in front of you and you know in just a moment that the pilot is going to grab that throttle and ram it forward and somebody's going to take their foots off the brakes and suddenly you are shot back into your seat as you're 
propelled down the runway. I love sitting next to the window. I like to see. And so I love that moment when I can see, feel the, the nose starting to pop up, and I watch as the shadow leaves the earth. It's, it's just a great feeling. Everybody loves a takeoff. Compared, however, to the time that's spent in preparation of the flight and the duration of the flight, it's a very important, but it's very brief in the event of the whole flight. And so I consider the takeoff of an airplane like the honeymoon of a marriage. Honeymoons are wonderful, they're exhilarating. They are full of exclusivity, of attention, and the fun of sexual expression and exploration that God gives as a gift to a married man and a married woman. Having said all of that, most of us would have benefited from a more realistic set of expectations before we went on our honeymoon. Men in particular think that they are going to step up on their honeymoon and be like baseball all-stars only to approach their wedding night with the clumsiness of a kid playing their first t-ball game. Lots of swings and misses and lots of fielding errors. And we've had many a discussion with new wives after honeymoons thinking, is this all there is? <laughs> the idea of sexual intimacy, it is sad to realize in the, in the context of the world in which we live today, how the literature of our world, how the movies of our world have painted an unrealistic, unhelpful, and in most cases untrue picture of what intimacy and marriage would be like. And instead of going to school on the lies of Hollywood, we would be better served to learn from the beauty of the Song of Solomon. So in the matter of physical expression of love, surely every couple wishes that they could go back to their honeymoon, but with the benefit of 20 years of marriage experience behind them. That's what second honeymoons are for, so that you can enjoy those times. Not only is this true in the physical realm, but it's also true in the emotional realm. I believe most people, when they begin to get married, are unprepared for the emotional attachments that come from other people as you begin to recognize that sometimes the moods and attitudes of my spouse directly are dependent upon my mood and attitude. And we recognize it's not just somebody being added to my life, but that their well-being is tied to my well-being as we become one flesh and deal with one life. I couldn't wait to be married. I couldn't wait to live life together. But when you get home from the honeymoon, you suddenly begin to realize that that which you had prepared for and planned for is now over, and now you have to do life together. Sadly, some couples appear not to realize that your marriage is going to be a long flight. And so they go straight up and they come straight down. It's one of the reasons that I believe it's important for us as believers to sit with young couples and six months after they've been married sit down and talk about the realization of what it's like to try to blend lives together when you suddenly realize that the guy likes to roll up his socks in a ball and throw them in the corner of the living room. Or you suddenly realize that the woman doesn't put the cap back on the toothpaste and there's crust on it every morning. And you begin to realize all of these things that life you didn't expect, but suddenly your lives are banging together and you're thinking, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Only to realize from those that have been walking that pathway a while that what you're going through is normal. And it's necessary. And it will be a benefit as you travel through this stage. The third stage is the steady climb. Setting a course for the rest of your marriage. Going fast is not as important as going steady. 
We live in a generation where wanting it all as a young couple has propelled many marriages toward disaster. Instead of advancing slowly and sensibly, many couples are tempted to charge ahead and try to cram everything that their parents have accumulated into the first year or two of their marriage. Many of them financially find themselves trapped in the debt of a plastic card world. Realizing that in order for me to look successful, I need to accumulate everything my mom and dad has worked on for 30 years, but I want it now, and the availability for for me to get it is now, and so I will dive into something that without realizing it is going to put a damper on the ability of our marriage to thrive. And many succumb to the pressure of looking successful financially and succumb to the pressure of wanting more than learning to wait together. In setting a benchmark of faith for our marriages, we would be wise to advise the, and avoid the straitjacket of financial bondage. There is something to be gained in your marriage that can only come when the two of you together sit down and set goals that you work on together, you plan it together, you save together, you sacrifice together, and when the time comes you make a purchase together that you can both rejoice in because you did it in a way that doesn't constrain you but frees you. Financial stress has destroyed many marriages. Let me just add to that the emotional development that comes in this stage of marriage. You will learn in this stage the art of listening to your spouse, the art of the joy of conversation, the joy of shared benefits, and the wonder of growing together as you get to know each other, as you plan for a long journey, a long flight, a long life together. Which leads us to the next stage, which is the cruising altitude, the, many, or the middle years of our marriage. In flight, for those of you that have flown any length of time, you'll discover that most of your flight is spent at altitude. Most of it is spent at just cruising. It's not not nearly as spectacular as the early stages, but it is equally important. The longest flights that I have ever been on are those that go overseas. And there is not a question that... As you are flying and you're looking out the window and you see nothing but water for hour after hour after hour, that it might not be exciting as watching the dramatic light show of flying into New York City at night or any any of the great cities of our world at night. But the fact of the matter is that much of our travel and much of our marriage is spent learning how do we manage the long stretches without succumbing to boredom or succumbing to indifference? How do we manage those times? Listen closely. For some of you that have been married for a long time, just because something is routine does not mean it has to be dull. There is a joy in the routine. There is a joy in the comfort that you develop. The best marriages are not those that are filled with takeoffs and landings in which couples manage to negotiate all of that. The best marriages are those that have learned the joy of the steady flight that just continues on and refuse to be bored but continue to make investment in one another. And in the middle of those flights, in the middle of those long stretches of the middle years of marriage, you will, every one of you, experience times when you will hit unexpected turbulence. There's a reason that they tell you that if you are in your seat, please put your seatbelt on because for some of you, those turbulence are going to be severe. For others, it might be a light chop. But when they occur, you are to tighten your seatbelt, take a deep breath, Ask God for his protection and help. 
and hold each other's hands until you pass through the weather into smooth sailing again. And having acknowledged that a large chunk of our marriages will be fairly routine and lived in lives where you're just floating along, they also provide something that's called in-flight entertainment. I discovered that I could download the United app on my phone. And if I did that, it was supposed to give me an array of things that I could watch. I missed a spot somewhere in there because I got the downloaded app and I get all their commercials, but I could never find anything that was worthy to watch or couldn't get it to come onto my phone. But there is this aspect of what do you do in your marriage in the middle time? What do you do in those years that you're, you're cruising altitude and it seems to be routine? Let me just tell you, the best marriages are those that learn to find things that both of you may be entertained together. Before I was married... I spent all of my time hunting or fishing or golfing or playing on multiple softball leagues during the week. My daily wardrobe was a pair of cowboy boots or hiking boots, a pair of jeans, a belt buckle that I had wanted a fair by showing cows. It was a great-looking belt buckle. And three different T-shirts that I would wear every day. I did not know what a craft fair was. I had no interest in going to the mall. I certainly didn't spend any time in my world at that time assessing color schemes or interior design. Didn't even fit my vocabulary. Today, all of those things are a part of my life. And the reason is simple. Cindy likes them. And I would rather walk with her at a craft fair and hold her hand and be present and watch her smile as she's trying to figure out what good values are than live my life alone. I love to see her happy, but I have also influenced this woman. We can be flying along at 65 miles an hour, and she can pick deer out in the field just like that. In fact, she's so good at it, she can beat me to it sometimes, of which she takes great delight. She knows the difference between a catfish and a largemouth bass, and she honestly enjoys going with me to shop at Bass Pro Shops. Why? Because she likes me to be happy. And we've recognized that some of our in-flight entertainment has had to be sacrificial in understanding the joy of the other. Every couple needs to learn how to walk in stride with one another. And it's a skill that must be developed because it's not natural in most cases. Some couples fill their time with lots of activities together and other couples honestly enjoy just the luxury of sitting together in the same room and doing nothing. Both of those things are okay as long as you're in stride together. The most of the couples that make it for the long haul find that the simple joys are discovering things that you can do together and being content in each other's company, whatever the circumstances. Cindy and I have often talked about, in fact, rarely is there a week that goes by that we don't talk about the joy that each of us have when we come around the corner and see the other's car in the driveway because we know that we're seconds away from getting to see our favorite person on this world and getting to spend time together, and they're just on the other side of the door. And that leads us to the last one, preparing to land, closing days together. As we were coming into Syracuse, the flight attendant came on and said, in preparation for our final descent into the Syracuse area, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. Please put away all of your electronic devices and prepare to land. 
it's important that we prepare each other for landing in marriages. Because chances are, in marriage, you're not going to reach the destination at the same time. We spend a lot of time in preparation of couples preparing to get married about what life will be like, but we don't often train them for what will it be like when that line in their wedding vows that says, until death alone shall separate us, actually comes to pass. I don't know about you, but Cindy and I pray all the time, Jesus, if you would just come, we would both like to go together in the rapture. Any of you ever pray that? <laughs> if you're praying, Lord, if you'd help my spouse land before I do, maybe we need to talk. But there's preparation that takes place in those things. Given that we will probably be separated by death, it's vital that as we set the benchmark of faith of what should marriage look like, that we have made financial provisions for our spouse and for our families by the way of insurance policies and annuities and preparation in, in other means. And hopefully we all understand the importance of having a will that is current and represents our desires for what should happen when we are gone. But there's another aspect of this that's really important to me. I, I was reading a book by Francis Chan a couple of years ago, and he was talking about marriage from a perspective that honestly hadn't dawned on me before, that when we get married, that the wedding itself is a gift that God gives to each of you. You have been presented with a gift of a human being to do life with. But that when we land and when we stand before God, what ultimately we're going to be asked to do is I am going to be asked to present Cindy back to him. And I'm going to present her to him, hopefully having created an environment in our marriage where all of the potential that she had as a human being and all of her spiritual potential and all of her educational potential was an environment that I created that she could grow in those things that as I present her to him as a gift, you gave me this woman, Lord, and I give her back to you because our marriage has created an environment where she could grow in. Likewise, she will stand before God and give me as a gift back to the Savior saying, this is the man that you gave me and I did my best to create an environment where everything that you placed within him, I can give back to you in honor. And as we look at marriage that way, it changes the way that we approach it. It's no longer trying to find somebody that's going to make me happy. It's about what can I do with this gift of God to create an environment where they can fully reach the potential that God has given them to me to do. We talk about it all the time when we dedicate children, that mom and dad would create an environment where those children can go. Your marriage is a spiritual environment. Remember, it's a picture of Christ in the church. And in that, he expects us one day to be able to stand before him and say, here is what I have done and the environment I've created with the gift that you gave me so that I can give her back in honor to you. And in that spiritual peace, it begins to put together things for us that we begin to understand so that we can treat one another well. Also, in the preparing to land, I remember when my mom and dad were retiring from the mission field and they were coming back home, and the day they got home to retire, it was discovered that my mom was in stage four pancreatic cancer. They had planned a retirement years to be around the grandkids and come see us, and suddenly, suddenly it became evident that my mom was going to land before my dad did. And it was in those intervening weeks, those few days, that each of us as children got to watch my father honor her, sitting beside her hospital bed, holding her hand, and we say, hey, Dad, 
you know, we'll take the time. He goes, no, 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 this is my wife. This is my love. We started this together. We're going we're gonna to land this together. Now, watch as she became uncommunicative in the end, and even when she was dry, just putting a little sponge of liquid on her mouth because he was showing each of us, this is how you end a marriage when one lands before the other. And set an example for each of us that part of the preparation of marriage is what have you done to prepare when one of you will land before the other. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and prepare themselves. This is the benchmarks that we are setting for ourselves as faith, as people of faith. Lord, I want my marriage to be an adequate representation of the grace of God that you poured out in my life. And I want my marriage to be an adequate picture of the faithfulness that I have to my spouse or her to me that demonstrates your great faithfulness. We make all kinds of promises as an altar, but there's a long flight ahead, and we need to learn to navigate that by continually investing. One of the saddest things I hear when I counsel couples is, we've just grown apart. I'm thinking, you were locked into the seats beside one another for this long journey. Why would you ever do anything that wouldn't build into each other's life? You grow together in marriage by investing in one another. 